Fixate on Code, episode 19. Alright, Larry Boiter here and you are listening to Fixate on Code, the weekly bite-sized podcast where I talk to the best devs about their favorite strategies for writing great code. Now, let's chat with today's featured guest, David Korshid. David, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. David works on Microsoft's Visual Studio Live Share, a service that enables developers from anywhere in the world to collaboratively code, debug, and more from the comfort of their own Visual Studio or Visual Studio code editors. With his awesome work on CSS animations and more recently, his work on XState, a library that makes managing state and user interfaces easier, David is an innovative force in the CSS and JavaScript world. David, can you fill in some of the gaps in that intro and tell me a little bit about what you get up to when you're not writing code? Uh, well, that intro was pretty spot on. I'm a um, mostly a front-end developer, JavaScript, and I, uh, I'm also a pianist. I, I graduated the University of Central Florida as a piano performance major, and so I enjoy playing piano. I also enjoy traveling and spending time with my dogs. <laughs> So what are you most passionate about as a developer? Well, uh, to me, there's two things. And they're, they're really two in the you know same thing. It's user experience and developer efficiency. And I say they're the same thing because developers are users too. And uh, so I, I'm always thinking about how we could reduce the cognitive load on the user when they're using applications uh, via animations or smart user interfaces or thoughtful design. And also having developers work as little as possible to achieve those goals so that, you know, they don't have to be coding 80 hours a week. Mm. All right. Now you're working at Microsoft now. You've done awesome stuff on CodePen. Your CSS animations are unrivaled in what's going on there. And you've also worked on XState now, completely changing the way that people are starting to think about states. What are the steps that got you to where you are today? Well, um, it's funny because I first wanted to be a musician. Uh, we had this intro to music tech class, though, and uh, our final project in that class was to make a marketing website for yourself. And there was this program called iWeb uh, that you use to drag and drop things and make your own website. But I was lazy. I didn't want to go all the way to the university and use that program to uh, make my website. So I decided to research and figure out how to do it myself in using CSS, JavaScript, HTML, I did it, and my professor told me, you should be doing this as a career. <laughs> so, so I started working at the college, and I was initially working on WordPress, PHP, and a little bit of JavaScript. And that's when I started um, just experimenting with the front-end world. And I eventually found CodePen, where I started to make all of these fun experiments and challenged myself by doing things only in CSS and HTML and trying to see how far I could get without JavaScript. And so by intentionally limiting yourself, it really brings out a lot of creative potential. And so from that, I guess a few of my CodePens got a lot of attention, and I've gotten job offers from places in San Francisco. And ultimately, I, I worked really hard to make a name for myself, and um, I guess Microsoft noticed me, and so here I am. All right, David, can you take me to the worst experience you've ever had on a project? Well, there was one time, my first big job, um, I was, I don't want to say I was forced, but I was coerced to stay up until 5.30 in the morning oh, no. uh, at work, working 
on on a project that ultimately went nowhere <laughs> and it was just like you know that project from hell and my manager was there too till 5 30 in the morning i took a half hour nap on the couch it was terrible and and nothing came of nothing came of that project Right now, it was ultimately scrapped, not because oh, no. of the quality, but just because of higher level business decisions that said like, oh, we actually don't need this. And the deadline that we gave you, you know, doesn't matter since this project is scrapped anyway. What was, what was the biggest takeaway that you got from having gone through that? Since that was my first big job, like outside of working at the college, I learned that it's extremely important as a developer to be an active participant in the higher level decision-making processes so that you're not just beholden to whatever your manager says you have to do or whatever uh, BA or a project manager or anyone higher up you know, tells you what to do. Um, but instead, you should be an active voice in making those decisions. I think also what's unfortunate is we often push ourselves so hard as developers trying to get work out and after only a few hours of dev, you can only do so much. And I think people on all levels forget that, especially in a managerial position where they just need to get stuff done. And you're pushing people to that degree. I mean, working to half past five in the morning, you probably would have been more productive in two hours after six hours of sleep than having worked, I don't know, you worked through the night, basically. Yeah, I mean, I am a bit of a night owl. I love working at night, but I mean, that was a bit excessive. And Yes, you could be more efficient after sleeping, but you could be even more efficient by just being active in those higher level decisions where you could say, hey, maybe we don't need to do this at all. And doing no work is the most efficient work. (laughs) Yeah. Now, David, in terms of getting quality work done on a daily basis, which method or tool do you use that you'd hate to be without? Uh, Well, currently, I'm always on VS Code. Um, I used to be on Sublime, but VS Code has so many extensions and an extensive marketplace for all these extensions where basically anything you could think of that you would need to help you in your day-to-day coding, it's, it's available there. So I use VS Code all the time. And you know, since I'm working on VS Code extensions for Visual Studio Live Shared, like you really get to know the ins and outs and what VS Code is capable of. Uh, also CodePen, I go on CodePen every day, either to find inspiration or look at coding techniques or see what other people are doing or as a scratch pad for my own code. Mm-hmm. Um, I also cannot live without the, uh, Mozilla developer documentation because despite its name, it's actually a collaboration between Mozilla, Google, and Microsoft working on improving these docs and making them as comprehensive as possible. But the absolute tool that I cannot go without are just pencil and paper. <laughs> Those are the most important tools to me as a developer because you know it's great to just get your thoughts on something tangible. Mm-hmm. How, uh, how is Visual Studio Live Share? How is that changing how developers are working together? Is it a replacement for Tmux? How does it compare to something like Tmux? So Visual Studio Live Share, uh, first of all, one of the major goals is that It's meant to be a collaborative environment from the comfort of your own editor. Currently, we support Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code, which a lot of people are using already. And we're hoping in the future to expand that and make it available to more uh, more editors and more platforms as well. Mm. Um, Also, it's not just, it's definitely not screen sharing. 
So you're not seeing the other person's screen, which, you know, can also be a huge advantage. It's more, uh, you're sharing files between people, you're sharing context in which, you know, you would be coding in one file or debugging, you know, in another file or even running a live app. And the, the person you're connected to can also see what you're doing and have that code working on their machine as well. It's crazy. And so it's full developer experience. So it's not just text sharing. It's not like just Google Docs for coding. It's, it's a lot more than that. And there's a lot of really cool features planned for this. So now where in your daily work do you still get frustrated? And where do you feel there's room for things to be done in a more effective way? Well, they say that hell is other people's code. <laughs> I, I like to, I, I like to expand that quote and say hell is other people's code or code that you yourself wrote a week ago. <laughs> um, and the reason it gets so complex is because uh, we have all this complex application logic, or you could think of it as business logic, where the logical flow of the code only exists in the mind of the developer mm. that created it, and so it's not immediately clear to anyone else by reading the code, what the code's purpose is. All they see is like, okay, you have a for loop. What's this for loop for? What, what do these if statements mean? And this is traditionally known as spaghetti code. Unless it's written by a uh, senior developer, then it's lasagna code. A little bit of <laughs> but still of the Italian flavor. And <laughs> so I, I, I look at these problems and I'm like, these can be solved by... Well, by first of all, just simple modularization at a basic level, just organizing your code, um, but also just thinking about ways to offset whatever's going on in your mind and putting it in the computer mm -hmm. so that the computer can understand it as well. And so that your intentions are right there on the computer in a declarative way so that neither the developer nor the computer has to guess what's going on in your head when you're making this logic. Mm. And I suppose a lot of this comes from the move away from imperative code and towards declarative code. I mean, I know on my side, having moved quite a fair way from, from imperative code, when I go back to code that I've written, I can read it a week later. Um, I'm not sure about two weeks later, <laughs> but there definitely is that major difference in declarative code. But I mean, that's just the beginning. You're still, you're still working with mountains of different files, other people's code, um, trying to get other people to understand what you've written as well as what you're writing. So I suppose there's a whole number of levels there that you have to try to address. Right, yeah. And um, what you said about declarative code is absolutely correct, where it's definitely a step in the right direction, and we've already proven it. A lot of our imperative code is basically us thinking that we're smarter than the computer. It's like, computer, <laughs> you don't know how to do this, so I'll help you figure it out. Whereas declarative code is like, hey, I trust you. You know how to do this. Let me just give you the most minimal information that you need. And that, that's extremely scalable, flexible, composable, all of that stuff, especially mixed with functional programming because mm. declarative and functional go hand in hand. Mm. One of the examples I'd love to give is people love to whine about CSS. <laughs> oh, They're yes. like, oh, never does anything right. Everything's broken and whatever. But imagine that there was no CSS. <laughs> Imagine that we had to create absolutely everything on the browser or on our web pages with just, I don't know, the Canvas library, which is completely imperative. Then if you handed it off to another developer, they would have no idea where to start. If they needed to move something one pixel to the left or recolor <laughs> something, it would be a mm. mess. 
at least with CSS, it's like there's a declarative way where it's like, okay, if I want to change the color, I literally just change the color properly. Yeah. And same with HTML. So thank God for HTML yeah. and CSS. <laughs> How do you feel about the impact of JS and CSS and people's perception of CSS? Do you think it's helping people adopt CSS or do you think perhaps it's masking problems that people perceive in CSS that maybe can resolve through a deeper understanding? Um, what are your opinions on how JS and CSS is changing the way that people think about CSS? So I remember about I think it was about a year ago that there was just this whole big debate on CSS and JS, whether you should be using JavaScript for styling or CSS for styling. And honestly, in my perception, I've seen it go from one extreme to the other and then just meet comfortably in the middle um, because people realize that trying to trying to shoehorn CSS into a JavaScript context is is a leaky abstraction and it's really unwieldy and you know just weird <laughs> to do. And so there there are libraries that actually provide a good balance for that. Uh, of course there are CSS modules where it's like just write CSS and then just include it and everything's modular and more componentized. And there's also styled components which I personally love because it's CSS and JavaScript but it doesn't feel like CSS and JavaScript. Uh, the main takeaway from all of this though is that when we componentize and modularize CSS in a, in a more robust way than just random class names or selectors everywhere, then we get much more predictable styling. And so that's something that you could carry on whether you're using just CSS or a CSS and JavaScript thing. Yeah, so it's really useful. Now, in terms of new projects, libraries, or frameworks, what are you most excited about at the moment? Uh, well. Um, one of the things I've been excited about, but I'm super excited about because it's slowly coming to version 6, is RxJS. Mm. And so RxJS has been around for a while. However, I don't think that RxJS has seen the, um, you know, the explosion of popularity that, like, say, React or Redux has found. But the thing is, RxJS is extremely useful, and it definitely fits the functional and reactive and declarative paradigms. And... Um, it allows for treating time as a first-class citizen where, you know, most other libraries just forget to do. You have to deal with promises and all of that. And a related project that I actually saw yesterday is Luna, which is a language. And um, if you go to luna-lang.org or .com or something like that, then you'll see it's a very visual functional programming language. And it's really cool because you could manipulate things in real time and see how they're affected. It's a flow-based programming language. And honestly, I think that that's the future. Uh, visually augmented flow-based functional programming languages. Also, I'm working on XState, as you mentioned, and I'm excited behind the, the growing community involvement in it and in deciding like how do you do certain things with it how should we approach this? How should we approach that? So I, I'm excited for using XState and more things and making like visualizations of state machines and things like that. Now, with all of the new languages and libraries and specs and, and all the stuff that's coming out all the time, how do you decide on what to learn and how do you make time to learn? <laughs> it's funny because 
uh, whenever a new library or framework or whatever comes out, I, I ignore it. I mean, maybe I'll read the readme. Mm. I'm, I'm not going to immediately try to learn it and play around with it. Instead, I'm going to try to see what fundamental aspects does this library or framework touch upon? So for example, Redux, um, you know, it sounded shiny and new. And honestly, <laughs> when Redux first came out, I wasn't really that interested in learning it until I absolutely had to. But it was more the, the idea of, you know, uh, the pub sub pattern, you know, dispatching, subscribing, all of that, mm. that really interested me. And that's what I learned. So basically, learn fundamentals, not frameworks, because all of these frameworks and libraries are built on fundamentals. And if they're not, then you shouldn't be learning them anyway. Mm. Especially with our transients, everything we work with is it's just a new library all the time. And, and there are those fundamentals that you can learn and hopefully take over to whatever new library or framework or, or even language when that comes along. Exactly, right. Now, which specific aspects about programming has dramatically changed the way that you think about and write code, David? Uh, so I think it's no surprise, but basically having your programming be declarative, functional, and reactive, mm. these all fit into the general idea of letting your computer think for you. Instead of you having to do all the thinking and you just outpouring mm. your thinking into code, you, you trust the computer to do it all for you. And that's where declarative, functionally, and reactive programming makes the most sense. That even goes further into tooling with letting the computer do its job. I mean, if we take a look at something like Prettier.js, you're eliminating something which you shouldn't be doing. Why, why are you formatting your code? Shouldn't oh, you yeah. just be writing your code? <laughs> Honestly, with, with prettier, I type, I type worse. Oh, my God. I'm like, I, <laughs> I could just be as sloppy as possible and just press, you know, command S and it just formats it. <laughs> but how much work are other languages now that you don't have prettier in? Oh, my word. It's, it's a nightmare. Doing any yeah. reformatting in anything else now feels like, I don't know, it feels like I'm hitting my head against the wall. Right. Pretty is, I think pretty has ruined me. I do. I write terrible JS now. My JS looks terrible and it makes it look great for me. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And with that, we've come to the end of our first segment. David, I'm about to throw some quick fire questions your way. Let's do this. All right. What is the best advice about programming that you have ever received? I think I heard if something can be automated, just automate it. Don't, don't think about it. Just let the computer do it. Which personal habits do you attribute to writing better code? Literally writing. Pencil and paper. If you could get your thoughts down, uh, draw diagrams, that's the best way to go. If you could recommend one book on programming, what would it be and why? It's sort of an expensive book right now. Hopefully you could find it at your library, but it's Constructing the User Interface with State Charts by Ian Horick. Why is that? Uh, it's, it's a really important book on describing how the idea of state machines and state charts are influential and really importance to designing user interfaces that are bug-free, maintainable, and do exactly what the user wants. Who in the front-end world is doing work that's really inspiring, David? Oh, there's, there's a lot of people. Um, for, for years, it's been um, Sarah Drasner, Val Head, Rachel Neighbors, Una Kravitz, Mary Lou, Anna Tudor, which are all very recognizable names in the world of CSS and animation. And especially uh, Mary Lou, who runs timpanist.net slash codrops. 
ever since I started programming, really, she's been extremely influential on just inspiration mm. for how I create user interfaces and all of that. Her, her work is utterly amazing. And also, um, Brett Victor, who uh, runs worrydream.net, and he's made a ton of really awesome um, presentations on the future of user interfaces and what programming languages and user interfaces could look like and should look like in the future. Mm. Now, David, imagine you wake up and you have no recollection of ever writing code. With your knowledge of tools, books, and courses available today, how would you go about learning to program from scratch? Well, I'm sort of cheap, so I the, the first thing I would do is just go straight to the documentation because the <laughs> documentation is free. And I, I would start you know, reading up from there, read the entire documentation, try to learn as much as I can from that to get started on learning whatever language I decide to learn. And um, immediately from there, I'm not going to touch any other tutorial or book just yet because I'm going to think, okay, what can I make? Mm. How, how can I apply this knowledge? Because I, I learn best from example and I learn best from doing things. So I'll try to make a sample application. And if there's something that I don't know how to do, I'm going to Google it, maybe find a tutorial and then work from there. And David, let's wrap up with your top tip on how to work smart and then the best way to connect with you. Okay, so my top tip on working smart is, well, it really feeds into the question of what is considered like a good developer. It's not, to, to me, it's not a developer that works 80 hours a week or writes thousands and thousands of lines of code, but it's the developer that can successfully manage his or her work and find the free time to do things that truly matter, like spending time with family and friends, mm. because it means that you're doing your work efficiently and you're finding the best and the most efficient ways to get things done and to not spend hours and hours coding and rather just having the computer do it all for you and, you know, living life. <laughs> <laughs> to everyone out there, you've been hanging with David Korshid and Larry Boerter. Head over to fixate.it where you'll find links and timestamps for everything we've been chatting about today. And of course, head over to XState on GitHub and see how finite state machines can simplify your UIs. David, I want to thank you for sharing your journey with Fixate on Code. Keep pushing the limits and keep pushing great code. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. <laughs>